0: So, Will. Yes. In this week's movie, in the vein of several great hits, including ones covered on this podcast like Steel Magnolias, important information is shared in a salon. Yeah, but nobody gets juice surrounding that information in this movie. That is true. But I do want to ask what is your favorite salon scene from a movie? Well, if we define salon broadly, or just hair cutting location.
1: Yeah. I would say it's one where you have to attend the tale. Oh well. Of Sweeney Todd,
0: I got to say not what I was expecting because I don't really picture that as a hair cutting emotion sharing location, but I guess it is.
1: Yeah, uh Sweeney has a whole conversation with Judge Turpin about how uh how pretty women are and how great pretty women are. And that's a nice little sharing moment. And then uh, he has a whole lesson on wig making with Antony. You know, there's tawny and there's golden saffron. There's flaxen
0: and there's blonde. You know? We're, we all know these things. Yes. I am curious. Do you like the Tim Burton, Sweeney Todd? I think it's okay. I don't think it's a disaster. I
1: like the production design. I think he has some interesting ideas with it. I feel like it's a little inert, which is kind of the problem with a lot of later Burton, where... Some of the pieces are there, but he can't really assemble it into anything with narrative momentum.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I think that Helena Bonham Carter was very good casting. She's good in it. I mean... And she is good in it. By the Sea is a song that I pretty much
1: hate on stage, but I think is great in the movie.
0: I mean, I think they do well with... They use the fact that it's a movie well to do By the Sea, where you get the different shots of them actually by the sea. And then I also love Sasha Baron Cohen as Pirelli. Again,
1: like a character that I think is of limited
0: interest. Yeah. Um, I think it's... I enjoyed it when I watched it. I definitely agree. Not a masterpiece. But it's not his messiest film, for it's sure. It's perfectly fine. And yeah.
1: part of the reason that its reputation is so weird is because I think it got an F Cinema score, <laughs> maybe a D, because the trailer had no singing
0: in it. Yeah, they... Really, should you shouldn't surprise people with a musical.
1: So you have the people who, like, love Sondheim and see the trailer and are like, what's going on with this Sweeney Todd movie? And then you have the people who are into, like, Tim Burton and Johnny Depp murdering people. And they show up and they walk in and the movie starts and it's Johnny Depp going, there's a hole in the world like a great black pit and it's filled with people who are filled with shit.
0: Yes, I think that... It- As much as you think that people won't come because it's a musical, surprising them with a musical is going to be worse in the long run.
1: Sweeney was this crazy thing where it opened on Friday pretty big and then just plummeted each day of the weekend. Like, the word of mouth was absolutely toxic.
0: Wow. So, anyway, one of my favorite salon scenes, speaking of musicals, is from last year's In the Heights. Oh, sure. Where they do the number in the salon and the mannequin heads start moving around, too. Talk about taking advantage of being a movie. Yeah, that was a very fun number. I love the three salon workers so much. And I think it uses the cliche of the salon being the place where rumors are spread, but in a good way because it's a fun dance number.
1: Yeah, that's a really good sequence. I had forgotten about that.
0: I mean, I can't believe that trope dates back to at least 1939 in The Women. Ugh, gotta get your jungle red. Gotta get your jungle red. God, I want to go to that spa. That place seems like chaos incarnate. There's just a lot going on there. The building must be huge. I know. It's like mud baths, nails, dog exercise, check. dog check, personal gyms, like individuals in their own gym room. It seems fun. Yeah. So... Salons, not very important in this week's movie, but, but you kind know what, of, but kind of. But you know what is important in this week's movie? White people, <laughs> <laughs> which I have a problem with. So I am excited to talk about it. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay.
1: And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast, kind of like
0: the movies about an <laughs> investigation. <laughs> but this is
1: much less important. As we always say, it's the least important issue. Uh, Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense?
0: And did this movie make Green Book seem okay? I'm going to say no. Okay. Oh, also, are these people actually dateable or even likeable? I realized I am more okay with white redemption than white savior movies. Okay. Because as bad as it is, black people do have more agency in white redemption, usually. So my difference with this movie, and we're going to get into it, is that I think Green Book
1: ultimately says that, like... Racism is solved by black people and white people becoming friends. Yeah. And ultimately, I think Mississippi Burning is like too muddled to really have a ton to say. But (laughs) I think that Alan Parker, as like the director, and he like uncredited rewrote the movie, I think he is like trying to work in some understanding that. Racism is a larger systemic issue that cannot just be solved by, like, being friends. Like, Willem Dafoe yes. can't go over and just, like, start talking to the black people and that solves it. Like, that Fran McDormand true. has that whole speech about, like, no, this is, like, inculcated from childhood. And then, like, the fact that it ends on the shop of the smashed tombstone is saying, like, this is not over. So I think the movie has some sense of the complexity of it, but is too wedded to a, like, we did it narrative to actually interrogate that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think that one thing I really didn't like about this movie is they say in the movie, like, the only reason the FBI cares about this case is because it's two white people that were murdered, pointing out, like, society is ignoring the cases where black people are murdered, but then this is the movie that gets made. You can't point it out in this movie like you're making a point when you, the director in the 1980s, chose to make a movie about this case. Because it's about white people.
1: Yeah. There's a lot to unpack in here. Um, (laughs) And we're
0: also going to talk about romance,
1: whether it's the main plot. Oh, I'm sorry. jumped right in. (laughs) It's okay. Or a one-scene flirtation. And this movie skews a lot closer to the one-scene flirtation. Yeah. It's weird. (laughs) Anyway, we're talking about Alan Parker's 1988 Best Picture nominee, Mississippi Burning, based on the FBI investigation into the murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, three Freedom Summer activists who were killed by Klansmen in Mississippi in 1964.
0: Two of whom are credited in this movie as Goatee and The Passenger. Yes,
1: uh, the movie is very much not about those guys.
0: No, that was a wild choice.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of the reason for that too is that this movie is pretty heavily fictionalized.
0: Yes, I do know that.
1: And the credited screenwriter who, like, wrote, developed the movie and stuff, Chris Gerolmo and Alan Parker, have argued for the last 30 years that this is not meant to be taken as, like, this is the story of what happened with the Freedom of Summer activists. Like, they argue, like, it's a movie, it's fiction, it's set in this period. The problem is, like, it is based on a very specific, very well-known event. Like, in a way, like, I see a certain parallel to all the discourse we had last summer about Stillwater – the movie that's not about Amanda Knox. Oh, right. Which, by the way, is a really good movie. But anybody who knows a little bit about Amanda Knox watches Stillwater and is like, oh, this is the story of Amanda Knox. And if you know a little bit more, you're like, wait a minute, this takes really important changes from it that like make it nothing like her life. But you have to know more than the average person to understand that. And I think there's a similar issue with Mississippi Burning where... A lot of people are going to recognize the basic of the story, especially when this movie comes out only 24 years after it happened. And you have to know a lot more to recognize just how different it is, which is why all of these civil rights leaders, including Coretta Scott King, were criticizing the movie or being like, wait a minute, this is a real problem.
0: Yeah. I mean, the Amanda Knox Stillwater thing is also interesting because she like had a voice to come out against the movie because she was still alive. Which then these people, because they have been murdered, can't really, you know, get their voice across. And you have to just tell it through the voice of, I guess, the FBI, <laughs> famous pro-civil rights organization, the Federal Bureau of Investigation.
1: I mean, that's part of the other issue with this movie. Like, so, Chris Almo, the screenwriter, he, like, read a book about the FBI in Mississippi during the civil rights era and was like, holy cow, like, look at all this stuff. This is a movie. And the thing is, like, that's true. Like, the FBI did work to, like, track this down. But the problem is, as you say, the FBI was also spying on civil rights activists and, like, blackmailing Martin Luther King and tarring activists as communists. We all watched Judas and the Black Messiah last year. Like, it is hard to swallow Willem Dafoe giving a good performance as the, like... 100% 100% pro-civil rights FBI agent, like, sitting in a hotel and using like, where does it come from, all this hatred? And I'm just like, I-, I don't buy it.
0: Yes. It is a toxic organization. Not even just about race, too, but all around, the FBI seems to have been just a bad place to be at the time.
1: And I think that framing of Defoe's character in particular gets at one of the other issues with this movie which is that it is just so like weighty it starts with this opening shot of two water like segregated water fountains and like just like watching as like you know, white kids go to the white water fountain and and black kids go to the black water fountain and like it's just like sitting there for a while it says Mississippi Burning and it's like all right we got it and then it goes to a burning church while an incredibly slow arrangement of Precious Lord Lead Me Home plays. And that is the first of, like, eight
0: churches that we watch burn in this movie.
1: Always with very slow gospel music playing over
0: it. This movie loves the, like, fire imagery surrounding the KKK.
1: And, like, Mississippi Burning was the real name for the FBI investigation here. But, like, we got it. And to, like, get so much out of that imagery of the burning churches and the burning crosses and all that feels like a bigger problem given the fact that this movie has maybe one black character. Like, it's maybe the little kid. He at least yeah. has enough has lines like to make an impression. Three
0: scenes. But
1: constantly, the black people in this movie are just like objects of the story. They are just like looking anguished all the time. They maybe get a line or two there, but they never drive the action or really push the action or do much of anything at all.
0: Yeah, they are basically set dressing. Because anytime they talk to a black person, it's just like, they don't want to talk because they'll be targeted, which is fair. But it also means that then they just say, like, no, and they cut away from the black people. I also, independent of all the race stuff, I didn't think this movie was that great either. I think it was too self-important for me.
1: That's the thing. Like, this movie is two versions of itself pulling at itself. And there's the Chris Garamo script, which by all accounts was more of just, like, an FBI thriller set during the civil rights movement. And the Alan Parker version, which is trying to be like a civil rights movie, at a point where there had not been a lot of civil rights movement movies. Because it was recent history. And I think both versions of it sabotage each other. Like, it can't be a weighty civil rights thing where the FBI are the heroes. And it can't just be like a potboiler thriller about tracking down murderers, you know, if you're going to do all the civil rights movement stuff. If you're going to have Francis McDormand give like a speech about you've got to be carefully taught. Yeah.
0: The scenes where it tries to be just the FBI thriller are honestly more engaging in some ways because it is just Gene Hackman being an FBI agent, you know, doing what it takes to get the information, which I also have strong moral opposition to because I think following the laws of the American justice system in regards to the treatment of suspects is an important cornerstone of our country. Yeah. And otherwise, it just becomes a police state. So I don't love seeing torture, even if it is bad people being tortured. Yeah, it's still bad. It's still bad. But also, I think Gene Hackman is a good actor to do that kind of stuff engagingly. Oh, absolutely. But even that, I also just like the weightiness, the slowness of which you just like are watching the churches burn with this gospel underneath. The length of the shots to me, instead of adding gravitas, it just took away from the momentum.
1: Yeah, and again, like it's all somewhat abstract because the movie has never invested in any characters who are directly affected by it. Like the most impact we see of a character we have any relationship with it is Willem Dafoe with his head in his hands, like ah, oh, why is there racism?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he he's a lot in this movie,
1: and like he is just like the voice of like. The 24 years later self-righteous liberal like
0: <laughs> yeah there's no one with that view of race that would have gone into the fbi at that time or would have stuck around long enough to become someone with influence it's so
1: weird um i'm gonna put these on our twitter page but there are two essays one by chris garolmo and one by alan parker written like 25 years later basically giving their takes on the whole Mississippi Burning controversy from the time of its release and on their thoughts, like, 25 years later. Both of which are kind of interesting. They both still defend the movie. Garolmo is really cranky about all the changes that Alan Parker made, but also is like, look, we made a movie about the civil rights movement when other people weren't doing that, and that's a good thing. Alan Parker is, like, going in both directions of the, like, it's fiction, and also, obviously, it's on the right side, where, like, on the one hand, he's saying, like, I didn't want to make the definitive civil rights movement. I couldn't have gotten financing if it hadn't starred white people. And also, it's fiction about the civil rights movement, just like Platoon and Apocalypse Now are fiction about Vietnam, which I call BS on because those are
0: not based on a specific real event. Yeah, you can't... One of them is a retelling of a, like, colonial book from the 1800s. Yeah. And the other is just made up. It is very different. He also
1: claimed that, like, he brought the political stuff to the script, and then, like, people got cranky because it wasn't political enough. And he's like, well, the script I was given wasn't political at all. And it's like, well, yeah, that would be less of a problem.
0: I think that you can't just say, I made a movie where people said racism is bad, and thus I made a good racism movie. And that's kind of his viewpoint, it seems.
1: Yeah, it's still an interesting essay. It'll be up on our social media, I think, on Tuesday. I already scheduled the tweet, and I don't remember when it was for.
0: That sounds about right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One of the other interesting things, I think, and that gets at our focus when it comes to these movies, because we're always talking about the romance, is that in the actual, like, Mississippi burning investigation in Neshoba County, Mississippi, which in Jessup County, where this movie is set, doesn't exist, 19 suspects were indicted. Only seven of them were convicted. Nine were acquitted. Three were deadlocked. And it's then in 2005 that another perpetrator was charged, convicted, given a 60-year sentence. He died in prison. But it's not until around that point that the identity of the whistleblower was known. He's just referred to as Mr. X in the FBI reports. So when they were making this movie, they did not know who tipped off the FBI. Like, yes, these are the people who did it.
0: Right. I did know that. So I don't blame them for choosing someone to be Mr. X.
1: Right. No, it's just,
0: it's just kind of a, wild. It's just they a weird storyline
1: already. That they decided to make it, the wife of the clan guy who also is having a secret affair with Gene
0: Hackman right it's yeah the actual like wild thing about how they discovered who Mr X is is it was like a high school teacher and his students doing a history project that basically cracked the case yeah it's so cool well you really got to start working on solving cold cases as <laughs> part of your educational curriculum Um, well, I still haven't been able to figure out who
1: Thomas Jefferson O'Dell was, the guy who committed robbery by telephone.
0: That, yeah, I love that story. That's my white whale. But I think, what do you do, if your students crack a case where a Klansman who committed a murder 40 plus years ago goes to jail, they get an A, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like they should get an A in everything, even (laughs) separately from the rest of their grade.
1: Yeah. One time, I always do a thing in my class where students have to propose constitutional amendments. And then we, like, host, like, because there is a method to amend the Constitution through a convention. It's just never been used. And so then we hold, like, a class convention to see if we can adopt any amendments. And one time a class got really into one of them. I don't even remember what it was. And they were like, we should actually make this happen. I was like, you know what? Fine. Like, if you get this amendment added to the Constitution, we can watch
0: movies for the rest of the year. Oh my god. The Constitutional Convention method is very intriguing as a way of amending it. I feel like you either have
1: no change or you have the convention to amend the Articles of Confederation, whoops, we wrote a new government.
0: Yeah, I think that is fair. I think the second one isn't a terrible idea.
1: No, I'm just saying I think that's the only version of change you get.
0: Yeah, sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Mississippi burning.
1: Yeah, so it... Actually premiered here in D.C. at the Uptown Theater, which will, God willing, reopen soon.
0: It got closed and then reopened, right? No, it opened.
1: The Uptown closed in COVID. It was an AMC at that point. And Landmark is in negotiations to buy it. So... Okay. It's a thing where hopefully Landmark gets it and reopens it because that's a cool theater with a lot of history. You know, Mississippi Burning premiered there. 2001, A Space Odyssey premiered there.
0: Yeah, and otherwise it'll just end up being another CVS in an old theater, which there's like five of them in D.C.
1: Right, exactly, and we don't need that. So it premiered at the Uptown on December 2nd, and then it went limited in New York and L.A. on December 9th. It didn't go wide until January 27th of 1989. So there's a period of like six weeks where some people are seeing it. It's a big awards play for Orion, but most people aren't able to see it. And it's, like, during that six weeks that it becomes this big controversial topic. Some civil rights leaders, like Coretta Scott King and Julian Bond, are speaking out against it, saying, like, the inaccuracies are a problem, and the fact that it doesn't engage with black people at all in this story is also a problem. Like, to the point that, like, there's a Time magazine cover about, like, you know, basically, like, fiction versus truth in Mississippi Burning. And by the time it came out, it, like, it did okay. Like, it made $34 million against a $15 million budget. It got, like, seven Oscar nominations. But it definitely had this, like, kind of sticky reputation as, like, that's the tricky movie. Like, I maybe don't want to go too far with that one. So it gets nominations for Picture, Director, Gene Hackman, Francis McDormand, Editing, and Sound. The only win it gets is for
0: Cinematography. It's interesting that basically the same debates... That happened around movies now were happening back then.
1: Yeah. Well, the year after this, Driving
0: Miss Daisy wins Best Picture. (laughs) God, what a world we live in. The Academy really does only love that you can solve racism by friendship.
1: Yeah. Uh, At the National Board of Review, this won for Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor for Hackman, and Best Supporting Actress for Frances McDormand. Gene Hackman also won the Silver Bear at Berlin for it. Really? Yeah.
0: Huh. I like that Berlin has bears as their rewards.
1: Yeah, I also like that the big ones have different animals. So if you were, like, amazing, you could collect a menagerie.
0: You could, except for one little palm.
1: <laughs> yes, you get a little palm, you got a, a weird man for the Oscar, and a lion and a bear.
0: What are the other ones?
1: I don't know. Like, what's the trophy for Toronto? Oh, the Toronto trophy is a boring one. It's just, like, a column with a hole in it. It looks like a bell tower in a church that was built in the 80s.
0: Hmm. Well, if I were to win any award, it would be a lion. That would be my... That's what I'd aim for.
1: Well, you would also want to be at a Venice film festival.
0: I would want to be at Venice. Uh, I am surprised that Gene Hackman won in Europe. Just at all. At all. Or for this. <laughs> for this. He just does... A, he is very much not an actor I would expect to win at a European film festival. Because he's so American.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, you know, he'd been in, you know, he had, this is Gene Hackman of, like, Bonnie and Clyde and the French Connection, and, like, you know, he's a respected actor in the international film community.
0: That is, I did forget, I forget his career trajectory, because he does kind of disappear for a while. I mean, he fully retired in 2004. Yeah, uh, well, yes. But, I don't know, I think of him more for, I mean, let's be real, the thing I think about him most for is, like, the Royal Tenenbaums. I know. I think of him for Superman, so... He was in Superman? He's Lex Luthor! He's Lex in, like, the Superman? Yeah! The one with Christopher Reeves? Yeah, he's so good in it! Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah! He's the one... You know his plan in Superman, right? No. It's the
1: best supervillain plan ever. Lex Luthor, who is not, like, a leading businessman. He was, like, kind of a smarmy rich guy with an underground base. He's been buying up tons of real estate in the, like, California and Nevada desert. And his plan is to... Like, hack into the U.S. Missile Command, drop nuclear bombs on the San Andreas Fault to blast California open, and then all of that cheap real estate he bought will be lucrative beachfront property.
0: That is incredible. It's amazing! Is that the one where Superman flies so fast the Earth spins the other direction and time reverses? Yeah, good movie! That's honestly maybe the most ridiculous Superman thing. A fundamental misunderstanding of how time works. Yeah, but you know what? Good movie, written by Mario Puzo. Oh my god. You know what I just heard about, speaking of Superman for the first time? What did you hear about? A pink kryptonite, which I think is mostly a joke. Uh I don't know enough about Superman to know about the different
1: colors of kryptonite, but I know enough to know that there are different colors of kryptonite.
0: So pink kryptonite makes Superman into a sassy gay stereotype. Yeah, I uh <laughs> I don't know about that. But it's from a more modern comic, so I think it's
1: probably a joke. Sure. Let's we can find out. We can go to uh, dc.fandom.com and pink kryptonite. My god.
0: Did I ever tell you how smashing you look at bow ties, Jimmy? By the way, that's a fabulous window treatment you've put together. That is a quote from Superman under the effects of pink kryptonite.
1: So this is from uh, a Supergirl comic from 2003,
0: which is kind of like the worst time to have a joke like that. Yes, that is a time where you think you're doing it in a funny way, but it's incredibly offensive. Oh, it's written by Peter David. That is not
1: surprising at all.
0: Who is Peter David?
1: Peter David, he's a comics writer. He wrote and kind of redefined the Hulk in the 1990s. He's a guy who has some like really good comics ideas, but is incredibly tone deaf when it comes
0: to writing about marginalized people. Ah, that tracks. Yep. Speaking of weird understandings of marginalized people, Mississippi Burning.
1: (laughs) Yeah. One last interesting thing that I want to say about this is that the Neshoba County Sheriff at the time of the investigation in 64, is a guy named Lawrence Rainey. So he's the inspiration for Sheriff Stucky in the movie. Mm -hmm. He sued Orion Pictures for defamation. He was like, you all are out here saying that this movie is just fiction, but everybody throughout the South, that's what he said. He said, throughout the South, knows that this character is based on me. So he sued them for defamation and then dropped the suit when Orion said, he is based on you and we're prepared to prove in court that you were a suspect.
0: Well, I mean, if he was a suspect, then literally he doesn't have a case. I don't know what he expected to happen there.
1: I assume he wanted some kind of statement from them like, no, of course this isn't based on you.
0: Well, I, I respect their, uh, their response, honestly. Look, Orion Pictures, there's always something good there. That is true. What a weird studio. Yeah, we never had it long enough. No, the story of just Orion Studio shows up low-quality films, wins all five Oscars in 1991, closes, like, the next year. Yeah. That's the story. All right. So, should we start talking about the romance of this movie? I, it I guess is so. so bizarre.
1: I texted you as I was watching it, and I was just like, not going to say much about it, but this romance is out of this world. It is
0: bonkers. To
1: the point that when it started to simmer on screen i was like wait a minute is this flirting like by that point i had settled into like we're gonna talk about race in this movie and actually have nothing to say for romance
0: yeah i really uh, did not expect there to be like if you hadn't texted me beforehand you know i was on alert for weird romances i also probably would have been like well i guess we won't have any points this week yeah, that's what I was prepared for.
1: But, like, again, it keeps happening with this, with Over the Hedge. Like, these romances keep springing up when I think that they're not
0: going to happen. But to guide our conversation about the romance, every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points. Will, will you take us to point one? Yeah. So,
1: point number one, appropriate given the start of our episode, occurs at a salon.
0: Take my head.
1: So Willem Dafoe and Gene Hackman are the first two FBI agents assigned to investigate the murders of these three unnamed in the movie Freedom Summer activists. And they're different, you see, because Willem Dafoe, he does everything by the book. And he wants to just bring in agents and figure it out. And Gene Hackman, he's from Mississippi, so he understands you got to be a little more rough and tumble. Like, sometimes you tumble, like in the hay with Francis McDormand. And sometimes you get rough and you like beat people up to an unacceptable degree.
0: Or threaten to castrate them. Right. To get information. So Gene Hackman, and I'm never entirely sure how
1: charming we're supposed to find his character. I can't tell. Like, for example, when we're introduced to the two of them driving to Jessup County, and Hackman is like singing this KKK song that got mailed to the FBI like, are we supposed to think that's fun? Because I'm more with Willem Dafoe of like, maybe we don't sing this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so weird because the KKK is so insidious and evil and also so ridiculous. And laughing at it is sometimes the only reaction you can have to stay sane. But the way he does it is bad. I think part of
1: my problem with this movie is that like, as ham-fisted as all the dialogue for Willem Dafoe is... I genuinely agree with him on pretty much all of it. Like, yeah, you should follow the procedures and not beat people up.
0: Yeah, and racism is bad. Thank you, Willem Dafoe.
1: Right. I mean, you got to keep in mind, like, it makes sense that he would be on the right side of this. This is literally the year he played Jesus.
0: Wait, what movie did he play Jesus in?
1: Last Temptation. Oh my god, yeah. He shot that and then immediately went to shoot this and they came out the same year.
0: He's such a fascinating person.
1: It's so weird to hear his same voice coming out of such a young face.
0: I know, because his voice is just as old as he is now. Love Willem Dafoe. Anyway, so Willem Dafoe is doing
1: like an FBI investigation. Like he's got Kevin Dunn working for him. They're overseeing a bunch of agents. Gina Hackman is just like walking around the town and he decides to go into the salon and ask people if they've heard anything about what's going on. So he's just like kind of trying to get the women to tell him about anything they know, but there's also, like, some flirting going on, (laughs) and it's kind of weird. There's not too much of it at this point, but when he's leaving, he, like, thanks, Francis McDormand. I I gotta pull up. (laughs) I want to at least know what their character names are.
0: Uh, Anderson? No. That's Defoe.
1: So Hackman is Agent Rupert Anderson, you're right. Oh, got it. And Francis McDormand is Mrs. Pell, no first name.
0: Which she makes very clear that it is Mrs. Pell.
1: Right, he thanks her as Miss Pal, and she's like, No, it's a Mrs. She's kind of telling him, Stop you, stop flirting, Gene Hackman. But then one of the other ladies in the salon is like,
0: I'm a miss. She's an icon.
1: <laughs> I like her going for it.
0: Um, yeah, it's a weird scene because I really did not expect there to be so much flirty energy off the bat, right. or it to be Gene Hackman and Frances McDormand. Right.
1: But there's also like little enough of it that you could be like, they could just have weird chemistry.
0: Yeah. But no.
1: And like the misses Miss thing could just be evidence that he uses in the investigation. Right. And just like also it's the South. Right. But then in point number two, the weird flirty energy escalates.
0: So they are doing more investigating, and then Hackman wants to talk to basically they are already suspicious of the sheriff's department's involvement so he's going to talk to her husband who is a deputy
1: so they show up at night there's this moment of like oh this guy stinks when there's a knock on the door and deputy pell just kind of like stares dumbly at francis mcdormand like what you don't think i'm gonna answer the door
0: yeah i mean he's quintessential bad husband very much so
1: so they come in Willem Dafoe is chatting with the husband. Hackman follows Mrs. Pell into the kitchen. And again, it's like a weird semi-flirting energy. Like, he's asking, like, oh, why don't you eat with your husband? Like, you all don't spend time together? And again, nothing crosses a line here. And it's weird enough that I wrote, is this flirting? I could not tell.
0: Yeah, it's weird. It is hard to tell.
1: What gets weirder is then, like, after Hackman and Defoe leave, like, they're gone for a while. And then he comes back later in the night. And he brings her flowers to check on the husband's alibi. Because the husband had told Willem Dafoe, like, everything he was doing the night of the murders. But some of it is, like, I was with my wife. So Hackman goes back to check with the wife. And he brings flowers. And there was a lot of flirting over those flowers.
0: Yeah. That's when it becomes very clear that they are flirting.
1: And we learn stuff like, she was married 14 years ago. Frances McDormand is 31 at the time they make this movie. Which would mean she got married at 17. Which is plausible. Yeah. Especially because, like, it would have been 1950 or something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 1950 in this town in Mississippi, married at 17 while still in high school is definitely plausible.
1: But so they are flirting more as apparently she is enjoying the attention of this FBI agent who is, you would think, just questioning her, but apparently not.
0: I mean, it is a man who is nice to her, which seems to be a difference, a nice welcome change then there's more investigating but then this brings us to the next point right right
1: we watch five or six more churches burn to the ground yeah while slow spirituals play and then
0: point number three um basically this is when francis mcdormand becomes mr x and informs them where to find the bodies hatred isn't something you're born with it gets taught at school they said segregation is what's said in the bible Genesis nine, verse twenty-seven. At seven years' age. You get told it enough times, you believe it. You believe the hatred. You live it. You breathe it. You marry it. Yeah, she. It, it's honestly, it's weird that she knows where the bodies are. She should not know where the bodies are. Unless maybe he was, like, drunk and bragged about it. I just, I don't know. It feels weird that they would brag
1: to that level of detail, but maybe they would. Like, in real life, the guy who was the informant, he worked for the sheriff's office or something, and he got paid $30,000.
0: Yeah, I mean, a much more plausible story.
1: Right, in this one, instead, it's Frances McDormand, in part because she is falling in love with jean hackman she gives this sad speech that could have been ripped straight from south pacific about how segregation is taught to kids like bit by bit over time and then hackman pulls her in for like this comforting hug but then they start kissing and it is pretty heavily implied that they have sex
0: and this raises the question is anderson just doing this for information i think no I also think no, but it is a question.
1: So Alan Parker, in his rewrite, wanted to have a, like, sex scene at this point. Like, really show them going at it.
0: (laughs) And Gina Hackman was like,
1: that does not make any
0: sense. No, that is a bad idea.
1: Yeah. So at the very least, as we're taking this into account, it is certainly the director's intention that they have passionate sex.
0: Mm -hmm. And then, point four. So naturally, then, we don't see them interact a ton. No. I think they have that one last scene right yeah yeah I mean there's a scene in between
1: so point number four McDormand's husband comes home at one point and kind of suspects that she's the one who has been cooperating with the FBI so he beats her up she's hospitalized that makes Hackman really upset he wants to go beat up Fran's husband
0: we're not killers that's the difference between them and us that's the difference between them and you you're not any more like them than I am wrong what do you care what I do is some, some bitch hiding behind a sheriff's badge don't you have the whole world to change That's right, and I'm changing it. Oh, you're just as arrogant as you are stupid! You're changing it too. God damn, I'm gonna make some changes right now. Don't be so stupid. Don't go messing this up just because you're partial to fooling around with witnesses.
1: Ultimately, she gets out, and point number five, at the very end of the movie, Gene Hackman goes to see her one last time.
0: In her ransacked house, because the townsfolk are mad that she flipped.
1: Exactly. But... She says she's not going to leave, this is her home, and she's just going to, like, work on trying to make it better. Which, again, like, kind of gets at, like, the sometimes simplistic view that this movie has about all of this.
0: Yeah. Because her plan is now just to, like, I guess, live alone in a town full of people that think she's a traitor. And that's her happy ending.
1: And again, I think the movie doesn't really think that there's a happy ending to all this. Like, I think the movie no, that's yes feels that this particular issue is resolved, but then it ends... On You know, I said it earlier, this weird sequence of the funeral with, of course, slow gospel music, but it's an integrated funeral, but also you have the smashed tombstone suggesting it's not done. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's worth noting that, like, Chaney's tombstone really has been smashed multiple times. Yeah. So, like, I think the movie has some sense of that. Ultimately, the problem for it is that because it never bothers to develop any black characters and black people are always the victim of racist violence in the movie like there's not really racist violence directed at our FBI agents at all like they're told a lot that they're in danger but they never actually face any danger
0: no it's all taken out on the black people so there are
1: never any stakes for the characters that the movie has bothered to invest in right they can just leave
0: which they do right yeah um so will do you find the romance of this movie believable (laughs) no no I mean, I guess it's, like, he is nice to her, which her husband isn't, so you have that. But there's also the element of, like, he actually falls for her when? Like, it's
1: not even just, like, physical attraction. Like, he clearly, like... Is in love with her. Yeah, and I
0: don't know where that comes from. (sighs) It's so weird. It's really, really bizarre. So every week we rate the romantic plotline of... On a believability scale, one being the least ten the most, Will, where would you rate this one? I don't know. (laughs) It's so strange. Fair. This is a movie that should have no romance. Yes, I agree. It's so bizarre. I'm gonna go, maybe, yeah, I think, like, a four. Just because I would be in love with Frances McDormand if I met her.
1: So the problem is, this weekend I also watched Something's Gotta Give. And that's a much more lovable Frances McDormand where she's like fun party people.
0: Yeah. Hmm.
1: As opposed to like married to the racist sheriff's deputy.
0: Yeah. This movie, God, a lot of problems.
1: I'm giving it a I'm giving
0: it a two. Okay.
1: I just really did not buy it.
0: Yeah. I think a three.
1: Okay. Now, do you think that Hackman or McDormand is dateable?
0: No. No. I mean Gene Hackman is a FBI agent that uses torture to get information. Yeah, it seems bad. Which is bad. And Frances McDormand is, like, mostly a non-entity, except that she exists to be Mr. X in a sexy way.
1: Yes, and she gets to give, like, the one non-Willem Defoe
0: ah, racism speech. Yeah. So, nah. <laughs> nope. Do you th- well, I mean, this movie doesn't imply they stay together, so I do not think they stay together.
1: No, not at all. But if you had to pick one person from Mississippi Burning to Date Mark, (sighs) who would it be?
0: I don't know. Probably Willem Dafoe. Okay, sure. He is, you know, mostly doing the right thing and doing his best to do the right thing, which is not what anyone else in the movie is doing.
1: I was going to say Kevin Dunn for basically the same reason, but he's not as sanctimonious as Willem Dafoe about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I mean, he would be annoying, but it's not a deep well in this movie. (laughs) No, it is not. So a lot of the movies we cover are adapted into stage musicals. My favorite being, of course, the Japanese all-female cabaret version of Ocean's Eleven, which I just want to point out because it's been a while that that's the movie that brought this question to the show.
1: I mean, the other one that, like, occasionally gets stuck in my head... Is the never staged Lily Allen Bridget Jones's diary musical.
0: Yeah. But this begs the question, should there be a Mississippi Burning musical? The Mark The answer you think? is no. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. I just don't think this movie is redeemable.
1: No, it's really not. Um, there is not a Mississippi Burning musical, of course. Yeah. There is a like concert drama, so like acting in songs, but like not a traditional musical, that covers the events of the murders of uh, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. It's called August Fourth, nineteen sixty-four, and it covers these murders and the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which were going on at the same time.
0: That I mean, that actually sounds like it could be pretty cool. Yeah, you know, you probably could do a musical about the Freedom Summer and issues around it, but not from the perspective of Mississippi burning.
1: No, we don't need we don't need the musical about the FBI.
0: I mean, we don't need any musicals about the FBI, especially in the sixties. Yeah. All right. So I think that is it for Mississippi Burning. All
1: right. We've done three of our 1988 Best Picture nominees. So at some point, we'll be doing The Accidental Tourist and Rain Man.
0: Next week, though, we will be doing a movie I am absolutely (laughs) dreading watching, Gary Marshall's Valentine's Day. Look, our episode comes out on February 14th, Mark. How could we not do it? I know. I know. God. But we should do it. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at love at gmail.com.
1: Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show.
0: Will last question. <laughs>
1: I'm not ready the for this.
0: Best piece of dating advice we got from Mississippi Burning.
1: Um, call people the name they would like to be called. Um. Gene Hackman is corrected, and he follows that correction, and it goes pretty well for him.
0: Um, I guess my advice is just bring flowers. Yeah, that's nice. It's always a nice thing to do. And there's not much more in this movie that is nice. Well, there you go.
1: Until next time, I'm a ginger.
0: And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye! You got
1: to be taught to be afraid. Of people whose eyes are oddly made And people whose skin is a different shade You've got to be carefully taught
0: You've got to be taught before it's too late Before you are six or seven
1: or eight To hate all the people your relatives hate, you've got to be carefully
0: taught. You've got to be carefully taught.